Amen. Good morning, King's Cross. Uh, visitors, if, especially if it's your first time with us, just want to welcome you. My name is Clint, one of the elders of this church. Glad that you've gathered with us this morning uh, as we continue our study through the Ten Commandments, coming even to the ninth today. Uh, again, I know it's a good time uh, for our members to be able to get up and do the scripture reading because uh, there are so few words to have to read. Uh, but Maggie says thanks for that incredibly edifying and encouraging prayer, even as we come to God's word. Uh, in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 16. Let me pray one more time and ask for God's help, and then we will get to work. Father, your word is truth. Sanctify us in truth. Set us apart as your people by your spirit through the preaching of your word. Speak to us. We need to hear from you. Speak to us. We need to be transformed by you. Holy Spirit, have your way in Christ's name. Amen. We live in a world full of lies. Some just little white lies that maybe children tell or maybe parents are guilty of telling their children. Some childish lies we tell to make friends think less of others and more of us. Lies fill our social media timelines such that Hashtag fake news is increasingly hard to discern from actual news. Advertisements use stats to manipulate consumers into belief that whatever they're selling, we need in order to be happy. And we are all increasingly skeptical of politicians because we believe that political success in our day requires a lifestyle of lying. We've even unfortunately watched and witnessed in the church some pastors be manipulative and use manipulative marketing styles or political posturing rather than faithful proclamation of the scriptures. Stories of pastors being caught lying to steal funds from the church or have inappropriate relationships. Trusted loved ones have lied to us. We have lied, some more seriously than others. And even now, artificial intelligence can increasingly take former recordings and create audio of people saying things they never actually said, but it sounds like they said it. AI can increasingly create pictures of scenes that look real and yet never happened. Even videos combined with the recordings and pictures can look like you're watching live videos or something that really happened that is actually just artificial intelligence. We live in a world full of lies. Not only that, but we live in a world confused about what the truth is. If truth is relative and subjective and determined by every individual, and there's no actual definition of truth, then we understand why everybody would run around talking about you live your truth. If truth is subjectively and individually determined, then there is no objective truth. And if there is no objective truth, well, then how in the world can we define what it means to lie? We live in a world where everyone lives and does what they think is right in their own eyes, like we read in the book of Judges. But friends, again, if there's no unchangeably true truth, then how can we even determine what a lie is? If there is no objective truth, then a lie might not necessarily be a lie, but just someone else's truth. We live in a world full of lies and a world confused about truth. Admitting this is a little bit unsettling, isn't it? To actually look and think, how can we even know if videos we're watching are actual true things that happened? How can we know we can trust any leaders over us in any category? That's a bit unsettling. 
to admit that we live in a world full of lies, in a world confused about truth. Does the Bible have anything to say to this, to speak to this? And does the Bible even understand the unsettling nature of living in a world full of lies and a world confused about truth? Well, of course it does. Psalm 116.11, the psalmist says, I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. The Bible knows what it feels like to be in a world full of lies and a world confused about truth. And the Bible has something to say to us even today. That's why we come to the ninth commandment which is obviously needed in a world full of lies and a world confused about truth. Exodus 20, 16, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. In a world full of lies, we need truth. We need to know how to discern truth. We need God to speak and reveal truth, and we need to be people who proclaim and bear witness to truth. If you want a big idea this morning, I just want to commend to you, God commands us not to bear false witness, but to be witnesses who speak the truth in love to each other and to the world. Again, God commands us not to bear false witness, but to be witnesses who speak the truth in love to each other and to the world. So let's take that kind of big idea and break it down point by point. First, God commands us not to bear false witness. First, let's address why the ninth commandment is do not bear false witness rather than do not lie. I think normally we might read it and just assume, oh, it's just saying do not lie. But it is, it is definitely uh, implying and talking about lying broadly, but specifically something else is going on in the context of ancient Israel. Remember our context. God has rescued Egypt, or, or Israel out of Egypt, out of bondage. He has set them free miraculously, and he set them free to be his new people. He's now meeting with them on Mount Sinai, revealing to him, here's the way in which you will live and be my holy people. A priest had set apart to me. Those who are proclaiming and showing the world what my people are like, witnessing to my glory. And this interaction, these ten words, or these ten commandments as we often call, are saying this is the pathway you're going to live this new life. This is the context. And remember all of it's by grace. He's already rescued and delivered them. Now they're to live a new life. So it's rescue, then comes this law that is saying here's how you live this new life that I'm giving to you as the people of Israel. And understand, in this context, then, when we're going to talk about first, what does it mean to bear witness? Living as his new people means justice must be governed among these people. And therefore, bearing witness is incredibly important to justice among the people of God. So what is this, uh, law, uh, this command forbidding? First, bearing false witness is forbidden. We see this very clearly. It's what the, the word actually says. Do not bear false witness. In chapters 21 to 24, we'll see kind of case law and how the, the law was to be applied in Israel and to settle disputes and decide and bring forth justice to reward right and to punish evil. But as we think about witnesses, you've got to remember contextually where we are. Like, they don't have CSI vans showing up <laughs> to evaluate. They don't have audio recordings they can manipulate. They don't have video footage. Like, there's not DNA testing so they can figure out and make sure to enforce justice. What they rely on to enforce justice are witnesses. So when God is saying, no, no, I'm forbidding you from bearing false witness, he's saying in order for justice to be among my people, my people must be committed to truth, even testifying truthfully about one another when there are disputes and when there are crimes. Witnesses were irreplaceably necessary to execute righteous judgments. Parents, this is why I would say you need to have at least three children, right? So you got a witness in every conflict. (laughs) Now, you got to trust along the way that that one witness is not going to side up with the other. So you got to work that one out. But... I'm kidding. That's not why you should have three children if you have, but have as many children as you can. They're a blessing. 
But in Israel, understand that this witness, witnesses were important because they were going to be used to determine what was true, what actually happened, and how justice might prevail. The Israelites were to bear witness to the truth impartially and irrespective of popular opinion. We read in Exodus 23, verse 1 through 3, you see this. Specifically says, you shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many. So again, don't just follow the popular to do evil. Nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice. Nor, on the other hand, shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. Notice the command here as it's explained what's going on. The repeated command is to not to side with the many to pervert justice or even to side with the poor to pervert justice. The goal is justice. and In order to get justice, we have to know what's true. So there's a command here in, in, in Exodus 23 to say, don't jump in with the mobbing majority nor naively show partiality to the weak. Everybody's sinful. Everybody's prone to lie. Therefore, witnesses need to make sure they're committed to the truth, not to partiality to one or another. Why? A witness is to side with the truth. The truth, that's what a witness is supposed to do. It's supposed to testify to that which truly, objectively happened. Sinners with power and popular opinion lie. And sinners without power and without popular support also lie. And so witnesses must bear the truth, must come to bear and proclaim and tell what is true. God's people are to bear witness truthfully and without any partiality. Now, to help deter malicious false witnesses, God's law required two or three witnesses. So maybe you need to have five or six kids. Let's just keep it going. By the end of the sermon, you can have at least a dozen. (laughs) But God's law required two or three witnesses so that there wasn't an ability to manipulate and just he said, she said, verse one or the other. We read in Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15. A single witness shall not suffice against any person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and the rest shall hear and fear, and shall never again commit any such evil among you. Your eyes shall not pity. It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. So again, notice what's going on. God is forming his covenant people, and he's saying, this is how justice will prevail among my people. You must be committed to bear witness to the truth, to not show partiality to the powerful or to the weak, but to show partiality, in fact, commitment to the truth. Every day, justice in Israel was dependent upon individual Israelites bearing witness. And you need to understand that this means this is an honor culture, and in an honor culture, reputation means everything. Your life or death might literally hang in the balance based on your reputation, based on testimonies of other people. Perhaps in the last couple of weeks, you've heard about Maurice Hastings, who was released this past fall and legally declared innocent a few weeks ago after serving 38 years in an L.A. prison for a murder he did not commit. DNA testing recently provided, uh, proved his innocence and linked the crime to another man, Kenneth Packnett, who died in prison in 2020 while serving time for a crime that was different but very similar to the crime that Mr. Hastings was charged with. Now, I don't know all the details of the Hastings original trial, but obviously a description was given by a witness that led to his false imprisonment for 38 years. Bearing false witness can destroy someone's life. However, 
jurisprudence is not the only thing the ninth commandment is concerned with. So that's, that's the primary context. So the worst kind of lie is when you lie about someone in the testimony of court that can take their whole life away. But this also applies to lying broadly. So lying is also forbidden. Not just bearing false witness in the court of law, but lying in general is forbidden. Bearing false witness is the worst kind of lie. But again, it's fair to say God hates lying. Proverbs 6, verse 16. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. See, the God of the Bible loves truth and unity. He hates lies because they are deadly and destructive to community. In fact, Proverbs 12, says, lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who act faithfully are his delight. So we have to understand and think about it. If I want to follow God, I want to know what he loves. I want to know what he hates. He hates lying. Think about it. Sin and death entered the world through the lie Satan told Adam and Eve. He said they would not surely die. That was a lie, a deadly one. Sin and death entered through that very lie. Believing that lie about God and about his goodness is what led to the fact that people would suffer and die and justice would be needed in the first place in a fallen world. It is a serious sin to bear false witness, to lie. It is a serious thing to testify that which does not accord with truth. It is a serious thing to sinfully uh, deceive other people. It's a sinful thing to repost lies on social media. It's sinful when we promote things that are not true. This is a serious thing. Why? Because we can't trust one another. We cannot function in any united way to accomplish any kind of meaningful community if we can't trust one another. So lies erode trust. And where there's no trust, there can be no true community, no true mission, no, no people actually together. And Satan is all about this. See, lying is destructive and deadly and very comfortable among the demonic. Lying is the very heart language of Satan himself. It's Satan's native tongue to speak lies. Jesus in John 8, 44 says, You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. See, God hates lies because they bring destruction, division, and death. All actions the devil himself is working to accomplish. Satan came to steal and kill and destroy, and he uses lying tongues to accomplish this. And the issue with lies is it takes lies, more lies, to cover up previous lies. You not know this. As soon as you start lying, you got to tell more lies to cover up and keep it going. Proverbs 14, 5, a faithful witness does not lie, but a false witness breathes out lies. It just becomes what he breathes out. Lie after lie after lie after lie, and Satan is here for all of it. Satan is about every one of those lies. That's why God condemns false prophets, even those representing God and speaking lies. Jeremiah 14, 14, the Lord said to me, the prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I did not send them, nor did I command them or speak to them. They are prophesying to you a lying vision, worthless divination, and the deceit of their own minds. Satan even does this today through false preachers and teachers. Paul warns, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14, no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. 
So it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Lying really is deadly. It really is destructive. And it really is demonic. But bearing false witness specifically and lying generally is not the only implications of the ninth commandment. They're broader still. Gossip, slander, and other reputation-destroying words are forbidden by this ninth commandment. So understanding, again, what is God doing? He's forming a covenant people. He's making sure justice is among those people. He's making sure people's reputation is protected among those people. Therefore, slander and gossip and destroying people's reputation violates the whole goal of the ninth commandment. The Heidelberg Catechism says the ninth commandment means this. Did I never give false testimony against anyone? Twist no one's words, not gossip or slander, nor join in condemning anyone rashly or without a hearing. Rather, in court and everywhere else, I should avoid lying and deceit of every kind. These are the very devices the devil uses, and they would call down on me God's intense wrath. I should love the truth, speak it candidly, and openly acknowledge it. And I should do what I can to guard and advance my neighbor's good name. So my goal is not merely just to not lie, to not bear false witness. I'm concerned about the reputation of the people of God. I'm concerned about the reputation. I want their reputation to be true and righteous and right. So I don't want to let lies spread or, or exaggeration spread about the reputation of others. Proverbs 22.1, a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. Favor is better than silver or gold. Leviticus 19.16, you shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. You shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. Friends, a good reputation can take years to build, and yet it can be destroyed in seconds through slander. Gossip and slander violate the ninth commandment because they both seek to destroy someone with words rather than build them up. They're not concerned about bearing witness to the truth. They're worried about destroying someone else's reputation. I'll talk a little bit more about how I see this playing out in, this, uh, in our world today just a little bit later in the sermon. But understand what we see here means that exaggeration, manipulation, deceit, and any way we do that about other people and such that we get personal gain is violation of the ninth commandment. Exaggeration, manipulation, deceit, personal gain are almost always alive and well in gossip. You rarely gossip about someone and don't exaggerate at least just a little bit. To make them a little, look a little bit worse than they actually are. To make you look a little bit better than you actually are. That's a violation of the ninth commandment when you do that. So I ask the question, is the reputation of others safe in your personal and private conversations? When you discuss other people, is your goal their upbuilding or their destruction? Do you exaggerate others' sins and failures while hiding your own in personal and private conversations? And I would just encourage you, don't say anything about anyone you're not willing to say to someone. So if you're willing to say it about them, you better be willing to say it to them. Because you care about them and you want them to be built up, not destroyed. So God commands us not to bear false witness, to lie or to slander, because lying is destructive, deadly, and demonic. And as with the first eight, as we've seen in this study, all of us are guilty of breaking this command. Week after week, we've watched and see we need a Savior who can fulfill the law, the law's demands, while giving grace and forgiveness to sinners like us. Second, and good news, Jesus is full of grace and truth. Jesus is full of grace and truth. Lying is a big deal. One commentator surmised, to despise the truth was to despise God, whose very being and character are truth. 
So when we lie, we do not accurately represent God. Let's go back to the third commandment and taking the Lord's name in vain. And understand that when we lie, we misrepresent the holiness and the glory of God. We're supposed to represent him, and he's a God of truth. And so when we lie, not only are we breaking the ninth commandment, we're breaking the third by misrepresenting our God, who is a God of truth. Lying is a big deal. But praise God, our God is not like us. Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? 1 Samuel 15, 29, and also the glory of Israel, that being Yahweh, will not lie or have regret, for he's not a man that he should have regret. The Apostle Paul, Romans chapter 3, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness, faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means let God be true, though everyone be, were a liar. Now, somebody can say the devil is a liar. <laughs> we are liars, but our God is not like us. Our God is true. He is always true. He's never broken a promise. He's never said something that he was going to do something and then not done it. You can trust him. You can take his words to the bank. He is true. Sin and death entered the world through a lie and multiplied lies. Destruction, uh, uh, destructive, deadly, and de uh, demonic deceit are the norm in a fallen world. Liars deserve to die for our lies about God and one another. So the question is, okay, God is not a lie. He does not lie. He's truthful, but we are. So how does God save sinners who lie like us? How will the one true God who is truth save lying sinners, even sinners like us? Well, by sending not just a man, but the God-man, Jesus the Christ. How does John open up his gospel famously when we think about the incarnation at Christmas every year? John opens up, John chapter 1, verse 14. The Word, that is the Word of God, the Lagos, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of what? Grace and truth. For from His fullness we've all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who's at the Father's side. He has made Him known. And later, what does Jesus himself say in his own ministry? John 14, 6, what does he say? I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him. You have seen him. So friends, we can be honest. We can have truth today because Christ is full of grace and truth. We can be honest about the truth. And here is the truth. God created you in his image for his own glory. But you, like every other human being, just like Adam and Eve in the garden, believe lies that you would do a better job being your own God than God would be God of you. And so you rejected and suppressed the truth about God and exchanged the truth about God, Romans 1.18, for a creation. You worship created things rather than creator, Romans 1.25. So this is the truth. God created you to bring in glory and honor. You said, no thanks, I'll turn to a false God and suppress the very truth about you. You chose to live as if your truth were, was the truth. And in so doing, you rejected God himself. You lied about God, which makes it very easy to lie to other people, which is why you're willing to lie to other people. Little white lies, deceit, exaggeration, gossip, slander, and even outright lying comes natural to the sons and daughters of Eve. Your sin deserved death. God would be just to pour out his judgment on you. Oh, but God, he's full to the brim, in fact, over the brim of grace and truth. There's just grace spilling out, grace upon grace upon grace upon grace, pouring out grace and truth. 
So what does he do? He sent his son. His very word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory. His glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth. The truth died in your place because you lived for your truth. This is the glory of the gospel. That you're a liar, but the truth died for you. After living a perfect, truthful life. So he says, I will take on your lying on the cross, on Calvary. I'll take the wrath of God your lying deserves. I'll take it down and, and I'll resurrect as the son of God, giving you the truth you do not deserve. I'll give you the righteous record of my truthfulness. And on that third day, he rose from the dead. Every lie, even death itself, was exposed as too weak to conquer the grace of God in Christ. The truth is that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life and you can get to him in no other way. Every other way is a lie that leads to death. Again, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through him. Every other way is a lie that leads to death. Christ is the only option. And God never breaks his word. He's not a man that he would lie. And so we exhort and challenge non-Christian today, even look to Christ today. Confess, I am a liar. I do deserve punishment. Christ was not a liar. He did not deserve punishment, but he took my punishment that I might have his righteous record. Make that glorious exchange. And put your faith and trust in Christ because God will never go back on his word. You can trust him. Again, God commands us not to bear false witness, but to be witnesses who speak the truth and love to each other in the world. Why and how? Because right in the middle of the whole thing, God is full of grace and truth in the person and work of the Lord Jesus. And because of the person and work of the Lord Jesus and that the truth died for us and lived for us and rose for us and will return for us, we now go out as his witnesses speaking the truth to one another in love. Point number three, we bear witness to Jesus by speaking the truth in love. We bear witness to Jesus by speaking the truth in love. So again, Christ is the way, the truth, and life. From him we've received grace upon grace, but his overflowing grace doesn't get to us and stop. So this is the problem sometimes with Christianity, like if, if you get like Bible Belt unhealthy cultural Christianity, not the biblical Christianity, is you're like, well, look, I just need enough grace to make sure I ain't going to hell because that's all I really care about. So no, no, no. If you get the grace of God in Christ, it's an overflowing grace. It can't stop with you. It's got to keep going. Gospel comes to you, works in you, transforms you, and moves through you. If it stops with you, you're not getting gospel. You're not getting grace. Now, grace comes to us that we might bear witness to and testify to Truth. Jesus' ministry of grace continues even now by the power of the Holy Spirit, who Jesus says is the spirit of truth. <laughs> so I look, I'm, just gonna, I'm about to read a whole bunch of passages of Scripture for you. They're going to be up there. You've got to stay with me because I want you to track. And I want you to see how the church is to be witnesses in the world of this truth and this grace we've received in Christ. John 14, verse 15. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So Jesus says, Holy Spirit's coming. How are you going to obey my commands? Because not in your own power, not in your own strength, I'm sending the helper, the Holy Spirit, in you. He continues, John 15, verse 26. When the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you've been with me from the beginning. So he says, this Holy Spirit who's going to help you obey me is the same Holy Spirit that's going to bear witness and point to me. And you're going to be my witnesses too through this Spirit who is coming. He continues John 16, verse 13. 
When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. I love this about the Holy Spirit. So listen, you know the Spirit's moving and transforming and acting when you're being guided into truth about Jesus and glorifying Jesus. So the Spirit's like, no, 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 don't point to me, point to Jesus. Like this is what the Spirit does in us. He shows us, he guides us into the truth about Christ and exalts the person and work of Christ, the truth. John 17, Christ continues, even now in his prayer closet, praying to his Father, and listen what he prays for us as he prays. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but you keep them from the evil one. They're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I've sent them into the world. And then Acts chapter 1, verse 8, just before Christ ascends, what does he say about the Holy Spirit? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be my what? My witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, to the end of the earth. So notice when we put all of this together, God the Father and God the Son send God the Holy Spirit to be our helper, to set us apart by guiding us into truth as revealed in his word, helping us to glorify the Lord Jesus and equipping us to be his witnesses in the world. So what do we need? What do we all need to be his witnesses in the world, to be a witness to truth himself? The Holy Spirit, the Word, and the community of faith, the church. So this is what we say. How can I be faithful to not just not do what uh, the ninth commandment forbids, but actually be a witness to the truth of God in Christ? Well, I must have the Holy Spirit because I need the Holy Spirit to guide me into those scriptures to understand truth about Christ, to glorify Christ, and to equip and empower me with the community of faith to bear witness to the truth who is Christ. And you know how the Holy Spirit does this? He does this by working in us both the content of his truth, the word, but also the posture to deliver the truth to each other and to the world. The Holy Spirit empowers the church to proclaim the truth with bold gentleness or gentle boldness. That there's a total commitment to the truth. And yet there is this posture of grace like we see in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We're not going to water down truth, but we're going we're to represent and speak and be witnesses to truth with grace. The Holy Spirit empowers the church to proclaim the truth with bold gentleness. Consider Paul's explanation of the whole reason God gave pastors and ministry leaders to the church. So again, sometimes people, especially if you don't know much about church, you haven't been to church a lot, or maybe you've just been taught poorly about the church, any kind of those options. Sometimes people think the pastor's job is to do the ministry, to do the work. We hired him to do ministry. No, that's not what the Bible teaches. Pastors, indeed, all of the gifts that God gives to the church are given to the church to equip the saints for work of ministry. But notice what this looks like in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. Why? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and of knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. 
from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it's equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Pastors, and indeed every single gift given to love and serve and labor in the church, are to use their gifts to help equip the body to speak the truth in love to each other. That's what a church is about. Pastors, their job is to say, let me help equip God, by your spirit, through the preaching and teaching of your word and discipling and shepherding the saints, let me equip them to speak the truth in love to each other. And that's how a church grows up into the fullness of Christ. King's Cross elders, this is our job, to make sure our members speak the truth in love to one another, to help them disciple and care for and encourage and hold one another accountable so that King's Cross might grow into the full mature stature of Christ. King's Cross deacons and ministry leaders of all types Your job is to serve in such a way that the body is unified and able to focus on speaking the truth in love. Now, what does that look like practically for members? So, okay, so that's pastors and ministry leaders. That's what you're supposed to be doing. What's that look like for the actual members practically? Do we have, like, how do we know if our members are filled with the Spirit and doing the work the Spirit is equipping them to do, guiding them to truth, exalting the Lord Jesus, and being witness? What does that look like practically? The Bible gets practical. Keep reading Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. What's it look like to have the Spirit? Well, you got people repenting of lying and seeking to speak truth to one another now. So there ought to be confession, I lied, I've been deceitful, I am sorry, will you forgive me, here is truth. There ought to be, no, no, brother, sister, I love you, and I see you living a lifestyle in such a way that it clearly contradicts Scripture, and I know you want to submit to Scripture. I know the Spirit guides you into the Scripture. I know the Spirit points you to the Lord Jesus. This doesn't glorify the Lord Jesus. I want to help you. Can I help you? We're speaking in truth. Like, okay, we're repenting of falsehood. We're repenting to speaking truth to one another. He continues, verse 26, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. We understand we're in the middle of spiritual warfare. That Satan is attacking. He wants to destroy and divide. He doesn't want unity. He doesn't want a people caring about each other's reputation. He wants to blow all of that up so we understand. If I'm angry, I need to go confess, brother, sister, I'm angry. I'm sorry. Help me. Let's let's reconcile. Let's not let the sun go down on our anger because we care about unity because the Spirit unites us together. He continues. Verse 28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so they may have something to share with anyone in need. We talked about this last week. Like, hey, we're not going to steal anymore. We're going to have gospel generosity, sharing and giving and serving others. He continues, verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Do your words give grace to those who hear? What does it destroy them? Do your words give grace to those whom you're talking about? Or do they destroy them? Do your words seek to uphold the beautiful reputation of God and to be used as an instrument to make the reputation of your brothers and sisters be an even better reputation? Verse 30 continues, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. People growing in love for each other's reputation. People quickly forgiving one another. People repenting of gossip and slander, running to encouragement and spiritual growth. People being tender-hearted with one another. Isn't this the kind of community you long to be a part of? 
Especially in a world where lies are so common, where slander is so common, where people are gossiping and destroying people with the words. Don't you want to be in a place where words are full of grace and truth? This is what God has called his church to be. So as I asked you earlier, is the reputation of other people safe in your conversations? It must be in the church. And not just when you speak, but when you listen. Christians, don't listen to gossip or slander. End it. Do it humbly. Hey, brother, sister, I don't, like, is this going to be good for us to talk about them? Like, is this going to be good for their reputation to have this conversation? If not, let's, I'm just not sure if we should have. Don't be an arrogant jerk. <laughs> like, but at least say, hey, time out. Like, I care about your reputation. I care about their reputation. And if we're willing to talk about them like this, then that means y'all will be willing to talk about me like that. And we'll be willing to talk about you like that. All that's divisive and destructive and messes up community. We're not to tear down. We build up with our words. The reputations of our brothers and sisters should be protected because we're speaking the truth to them in love. They're growing. They're repenting and believing and being transformed from one degree of glory to another. Let us be a trusted aid in that process, not a gossiping, stumbling block. So again, notice how the Holy Spirit equips us with the right content, his inspired word, but also the right posture, kindness, tenderheartedness, and forgiveness. We speak the truth in love to one another. King's Cross, like, we're going to seek to do that in this pulpit every sermon. Like, y'all know me. I don't water stuff down. <laughs> At the same time, we're going to make sure there's all kinds of grace and gospel and help and hope in the midst of it. So speak truth in love in our community groups. Members, if you're not in a community group, how in the world are you going to make sure you're doing your job to help equip and disciple this church? How are you going to build them up with words of grace if you never show up to anywhere but Sunday morning and you get here late and you dip out as soon as you can? How are you going to do anything you're supposed to be doing as a Christian if you're not in a relationship building people up? So again, we invite you, come to the community group so you can get in to be encouraged and equipped and built up that you might equip and encourage and build up in your discipling relationships in our community groups and in our life together. Now, just to be clear, this does not mean we police and confront every single sin that we see. It's the last thing we want to be a part of as a community where it's like, man, they're just everybody's watching and ready to get you. Like, we're not looking for the sin police, all right? Like, God has got it. Spirit's got it. We're good. We're not looking for that, right? And even 1 Peter 4, 8 says, love covers a multitude of sins. Even Proverbs 19, 11, good sense makes one slow to anger, and it's his glory to overlook an offense. So we don't have to call out every single offense, every single sin. We're all in process. The Spirit is sanctifying us. We need one another. We're growing together. We're not trying to police each other. We're trying to build each other up into matureness in Christ. And this has got to be the, the, uh, the concern of the church. And I want to give a couple of just very specific applications here that's a pastoral concern of mine. For the church more broadly, not for King's Cross specifically, but for the church more broadly. Thinking about this and studying this and preparing for this all week, I just social media is a problem for the church. I want to give a warning against narcissistic truth-telling that's especially prevalent in our social media world. There's a kind of truth-telling that I think violates the ninth commandment. Now, that's strange and provocative. Let me make clear what I'm saying and what I'm not saying. What I have in mind is truth-telling in order to destroy someone's reputation for your own benefit. One commentator points this concern out for the ninth commandment saying it like this. The Lord's righteousness and justice were to be reflected in Israel's life as a nation, which was thus to exclude speaking falsely, especially for the sake of gaining something at the expense of another person and perverting justice. So again, I am not saying we do not need to point out error and make judgments and talk very clearly about right and wrong, truth and error. We must do that. 
I'm talking about pointing out someone's evil in order to make you look better, in order to destroy them. What I'm talking about is the quickest way to get a social media following. Attacking people with exaggerated or attention-grabbing language will get the most comments, the most reposts, and the most traffic. The internet algorithms reward the breaking of the ninth commandment, I promise. They love for you to break the ninth commandment. So just understand, there's a way to say, I want to tell truth, I want to tell it like it is in order to destroy someone, but we're supposed to tell it like it is in order to build them up, not destroy them. So this is my concern as I look at Christians on social media deciding I want to go blast every Christian I disagree with on any and everything. My concern is those who, again, telling it like it is in such a way that divides and destroys rather than building up. And in this, there's lies. So that's where I said the provocative statement even at the beginning. See, this is not really truth-telling because hyperbole turns into outright exaggeration. Truth-telling turns into murderous anger in the heart. Arrogant gossip and slander replace gentle and humble confrontation and calls to repentance. Repentance no longer becomes the goal. Instead, it's replaced by this selfish, narcissistic goal of, see, I told you so. Or a cynicism that doubts any signs of repentance and confession and looks for reconciliation. Again, John Frame points this out, saying, Many theological conversationalists today set themselves up as internet gurus, declaring brothers and sisters to be excommunicate on their say-so alone showing contempt for the authority of the church, which alone has been authorized by God to make such judgments, and violating God's standards requiring protection of the accused. Many of these have no scruples about spreading lies to anybody who will listen. It never occurs to them they have responsibility to protect the reputation of fellow Christians, even those with whom they disagree. So to be crystal clear, God has not given authority to heresy hunters or to the judgment of social media but to the local church who's to be in loving relationship, building one another up in love, holding one another accountable, accountable, speaking truth to one another, calling one another to repentance, and if necessary, even all the way through to church discipline. But this is why there must be two or three witnesses to protect the one who's accused. So we presume innocence. So it's innocent till proven guilty. That has biblical foundation. Like, no, no, we presume the innocence. So the burden of proof is on the accuser to prove this person has done something evil. If we're going to destroy the reputation, we must prove that it is true that what they have done. Paul emphasizes how important this is with a pastor in a local church. 1 Timothy 5.19, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. See, Jesus and Paul not only point to the ninth commandment of presuming innocence till proven guilty, they also know the wisdom of Proverbs 18.17. The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. <laughs> like, I can't tell you how many pastoral conversations I've had with a person where I sit down and I hear a story, something they've gone through. My heart breaks, and it seems to me to be crystal clear the other person has sinned against them. They're a victim, and in order to get reconciliation, that person needs to confess, apologize, repent, and they need to be reconciled. And then I sit down with the other person, and I'm like, huh. <laughs> There's all kinds of data and details that were missing from that first conversation that now make this thing murky and cloudy, and I'm not sure exactly who needs to confess and repent of what. And so then we got to get them together in the same room and have conversations most helpfully with witnesses who understand and know them so that we can get to reconciliation, forgiveness, and love, and mercy. So again, and even in the final step of church discipline, when we excommunicate someone, we do so out of love. Think about Christ's words. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. 
If you repent, you've gained your brother. Conversation over. If not, take two or three witnesses that every charge may be established. So he's saying, no, 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 be clear. Make sure the charges are established. Make sure this is true. Make sure what we're, the accusation is true. But then if they don't repent, take it to the church. And if they don't listen to the church, then treat them as you would as a Gentile or tax collector. But the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, in doing all of that, we're hoping the person repents and re- returns. So even when we do it, we're saying, no, no, we do care about your reputation. Your reputation right now is you claim to be a follower of Christ. Your lifestyle totally disagrees. We love you too much to let that persist. So we'll just say, let your profession and your lifestyle agree with one another. You do not follow the Lord Christ. And our hope is that even in that, you repent and believe and come back to the Lord Christ. So even when we do excommunication, we do so out of love. We are truth people, but we are also grace people. For we are people of grace. So when it comes to truth, may we never water it down, but may we always gospel it up. When we share truth with one another, we don't water it down, we know we keep it real. But we always bring in that gospel hope. We always gospel it up because we're people of grace and truth. And why all of this ultimately? Because we're to bear witness about King Jesus. We're to point a hostile, divided, gossiping, slandering, lying world to the one Lord Jesus who's full of grace and truth. And what did he tell us about how we will be his witnesses? In John 13, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You're also to love one another. By this, all people will know you're my disciples, if you have love for one another. God commands us not to bear false witness, but to be witnesses who speak the truth in love to each other and to the world. And so we need grace upon grace, upon grace, upon grace from the one who's full of grace and truth. And he sent the Holy Spirit to help her, to help us do this. And by this kind of love, speaking the truth to one another, in Christ, because he's fulfilled the law for us, we now testify to the watching world, Jesus Christ is Lord. If you're not a Christian and you see and are unsettled by all the lies in this broken world, we'd say, look to Christ. He is truth. Join this community. Help us walk with him, even as we would help you. Let's pray.